Rage Kitty, today, I would like to take us all the way back to high school. No. <laughs> Come on, hear me out. No. Hear me out, please. Yes. Okay, so you grew up in San Dimas, California, correct? Yes. Okay, I remember this because San Dimas is where Bill and Ted grew up. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I am aware. I have a movie poster hanging on my wall. Uh, it is framed. Mm-hmm. Getting to a point here. Your high school experience was not like Bill and Ted's. Your high school experience was actually pretty rough from what you've told me. I did not go to San Dimas High School, though. Okay. Can you tell me, though, do you feel comfortable talking about what happened? Um, No, but it appears I don't have a choice, so. Uh, <laughs> no, you don't. Sorry. Rumor spreading, physical confrontations, like getting cornered and people threatening to beat me up. Oh, Jesus. Accidentally, like in air quotes, people would accidentally Ugh. hit me with things like in PE or on the yard. Um, stealing stuff, general social ostracizing. Did you ever get any kind of reasoning behind it? Like, well, we don't like you because of this or something like that? I've never figured out why I was bullied that way. I suspect it's because I didn't fit their definition of cool. Like, I didn't care about fashion or makeup. And my free time was spent reading and playing computer games like StarCraft. So to a lot of the school, I was just like a big loser and therefore an easy target. It doesn't sound like you were a loser. It just sounds like you were a kid who really liked what she liked, you know? But, I mean, how bad did the bullying get? I hated going to that school. Getting up every morning was really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I switched high schools, then it was actually a relief. Um, I didn't switch because of the bullying. I actually switched because I wasn't being challenged academically. But getting away from the bullying was like a very nice silver lining of switching high schools. This is kind of a weird question. But do you think that you learned anything from your bullies? In retrospect, the importance of presentation, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Whenever teachers would intervene, the people who were bullying me usually were very level-headed in explaining themselves, and I was the emotional one. So being emotional undercut my credibility. Teachers ended up just thinking that I was very sensitive. Mm -hmm. So I could have taken a page from my bully's book and been a little more composed. Sometimes you learn lessons from places you least expect. Your enemies. Our guest today is Luis Benitez, and he has this idea about how to protect what we love that may confuse you. I believe that the outdoor industry needs to stop being nice and being more strategic like the oil and gas industry. That's a pretty bold idea, right? So typically when we outdoor folks think of role models, we don't look to the people who are running the energy industries. But this is a belief that Luis landed on after years of thought. So, are you curious? Of course you are. Okay, let's do this. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth McConnell. You are listening to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them.
Patty, in your research, I'm sure you've discovered that my American grandfather owned a sporting goods store, a fly fishing and bird hunting retail shop in St. Louis, Missouri called Kelly Sporting Goods. My grandfather, a staunch Republican, you know, his gear store, in essence, was not just a place where you go to buy gear. It's a place where you convene to talk policy, to talk process, to talk conservation. And, you know, he had some leather couches and a small refrigerator with beer and whiskey in the back. He had a red bat phone installed. So the partners of whoever was hanging out there after work, you know, there was a there's a hotline to try to find him. And, you know, watching a, a lot of Republican and heavyweight politicos come in and out of his shop. I remember those conversations. To go back to your point about how far I got on my research, I got as far as my friend LB has climbed some mountains and he's got a kick-ass beard. So I'm coming into this pretty cold. I'm just kidding. I've been going through your trash for like a week and a half, dude. That's good. (laughs) I've been following you. God, why am I not surprised at all? Louise is the director of the Colorado Outdoor Recreation Industry Office. What that means is Louise is an advocate and political voice for the business of Colorado's outdoor recreation. He's overseeing a huge industry in Colorado. According to the Outdoor Industry Association, the state is home to 229,000 jobs, $28 billion in consumer spending, $9.7 billion in wages and salaries, and $2 billion in state and local tax revenue. If you would have told me as an eight-year-old, wheezy, asthmatic kid who was the son of an immigrant living in the Midwest that someday he was going to represent a multi-billion dollar economy after climbing Everest from everybody from a blind person to champions of industry and be responsible for the forward momentum of this economy and, and this community, I would have told you that you were nuts. You know, the sum of my ambition for a large portion of my career was to be a high-altitude international mountain guide. And, and that was the job for a really long time, helping to run a company out of New Zealand. List off some of the highs of your guiding and climbing career for me. Well, I got to say the highlight of the guiding career, lucky or stupid enough to climb Everest six times. But the first time was really, I have to say that that's the highlight. That is, I think, six more times than I want to climb Everest. But go, keep going. <laughs> I mean, as a 28-year-old whippersnapper, I was one of Eric Weinmayer's guides, the blind climber. And, you know, there's a reason why he had a bunch of young no-name guides on that trip because no experienced guide would have touched that trip with a 10-foot pole because a lot of folks thought it was uh, personal and professional suicide. But to to be able to be successful um, on that trip at such a young age, you know, that that will always be a highlight of my professional career. And, uh, you know, along the way, I think this idea of, of service started to creep in around the fringes. Luis's work branched out to include environmental conservation and education. He worked with filmmaker Michael Brown on a conservation expedition into the Corcovado wilderness in Chile. Their work there helped create a national park. That would probably be the other highlight of my career is playing a role in trying to secure the legacy of that land. But then something happened that changed Luis's life the 2006 Nanga Pass shooting on Mount Chui Oyu. It's on the border of China and Nepal, and it's the sixth tallest mountain in the world. 
Chinese border guards opened fire on a group of Tibetans trying to enter Nepal. Luis and at least 100 other climbers and guides witnessed the shooting. A lot of them wanted to keep it quiet for various reasons, some having to do with the climbing business and continued access to the mountain. But Luis shared what happened with the public. Luis started working with the International Campaign for Tibet. He testified in front of Congress, the EU Parliament, and Spanish Supreme Court. Luis says he took a lot of heat for doing that. Many of the guides and guide companies he had known for years didn't want to talk to him anymore. They didn't want to have their own careers impacted by being associated with him. But Luis's work got him on the radar of the Dalai Lama, so much so that Luis got an invite to actually meet him. I had the audacity to lament to him, you know, I'm not a human rights activist. The political scene at that point in my life was not a part of my reality. I'm losing work. I'm not getting invited on expeditions because I'm being so vocal about this. I I feel like I'm, I'm losing the thing that I've loved since I was a kid. And what he did and what he said still surprises me to this day. He laughed and he said through his interpreter, you know, I'd love to still be in Tibet and be my people's uh, spiritual and temporal leader, but instead I'm uh, in a government in exile uh, in India, in a totally different country. And then he laughed. Ha ha ha, ha 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 ha. And okay, so that kind of recentered my thinking. But then the next thing he said stopped me cold and actually pivoted my life's trajectory, which ironically enough, feels perfectly reasonable for me landing where I am today. He said, you know, Luis, I know you've been a mountain guide your entire life and that's what you love and that's what you do. But sometimes you don't choose your path. Sometimes your path chooses you. And the important part of that is then how you decide to show up. And so you've got this opportunity right now, right here, to decide how you want to show up because it's clear that you're capable of doing more than you're doing right now. When you put it that way and the messenger is the freaking Dalai Lama, you do not shy away from the new direction your life has taken. You run with it, or at least Luis did. He credits that meeting with changing the direction of his career. Luis took a job as director of Outward Bound Professional. Mountain guiding was no longer his calling. Service to his community and culture was. He figured that by working with execs using Outward Bound principles, he could mold leaders in a more conscientious, like-minded way. But he found out that these leaders weren't always on the same page. And the further I got in the outdoor industry, the more I realized that, that when it really came to our direction of travel, if you will, like a compass, our industry as a whole was wavering. And we were living in silos, not talking to each other about things that matter to all of us. In 2015, Governor Hickenlooper created the Colorado Outdoor Recreation Industry Office, and Luis landed his current gig as director. At the time, the Outdoor Industry Association, or OIA, estimated that Outdoor Rec contributed nearly $650 billion in U.S. consumer spending. That estimation helped pass the Rec Act in 2016, or the Outdoor Recreation Jobs and Economic Impact Act. What that meant was that the outdoor industry would be counted as part of the GDP. 
Today, the OIA estimates that the outdoor industry accounts for $887 billion in consumer spending, 7.6 million jobs, and $120.2 billion in tax revenue. Suffice to say, with numbers like that, Luis has some legs to stand on. In his new job, Luis realized he could leverage the power of his office to organize national conversations. He wanted to talk about what values and goals the outdoor industry should prioritize. He's not interested in keeping the conversation within Colorado. He's looking across state lines because, as we know, environmental issues don't exactly care about borders. And for Luis, this isn't just a matter of efficiency or sharing is caring. For him, it's a necessity. Every economy comes with a moral compass. And for the outdoor industry, for the longest time, we were perceived as the people that that did good things. We saved rivers. We protected forests and trails, mountain ecosystems, river ecosystems. We fought for the climate. And these are all incredibly passionate, passion-driven and powerful things. Yet I think the reality that we're waking up to is that The other side of that coin is an over $800 billion national economy with over 7 million American jobs involved in that economy. So waking up to that reality and, and knowing that and then sitting back and saying, well, if that's the size and scale of us and we're driven by passion, what do we stand for? How do we stand for it? And how brave are we going to be willing to be when some of these difficult conversations come up? And, and, you know, this question of morality, it can be defined in a lot of different ways. And I think in today's day and age, you know, it's at the forefront of a lot of different conversations. And I think the outdoor industry is no different. I think the time has come for both a political strategy, for a social strategy and, and outreach that, that we have yet to, to create. If we don't figure out our messaging and our process, we run the risk of being run over, regardless of how big our economy is. We'll be right back after a short word from our sponsor. Even as Louise worked to initiate conversations at a national level, he kept running into the same problem. When it comes to figuring out the industry's political platform and strategy, who is in charge? Who speaks for us all? Who picks the platform? This question kept me up at night for a really long time because I, we have fought so hard and so long to, to even just get a seat at the table. And finally it dawned on me. So I want to paint this picture in everyone's head. So there you are, lying in bed. You're in your camouflage footy pajamas, <laughs> I'm assuming. With, and with, with, footsie, with footies, yeah. Footy, with footies. Footy oh, yeah, the footy yeah. pajamas. You're all zipped Very. up. You're all tucked in. You might have like a, a pocket full of gorp or something, you know, because we all get hungry at night. Yes. And this idea of the outdoor super friends, the outdoor Justice League, dawns on you. <laughs> So I think that makes, I think that you're either Batman or Superman here. Uh, you know, honestly, Batty, uh, where 
you know, the the governor and I were in a meeting and, and we kicked this idea around. And obviously, because I work for the man. Was he in footy pajamas as well in this meeting? Um, no, he was not in footy pajamas. This was this was fully dressed in his office at the Capitol. Okay. And, you know, I said, I got, I, I had, this is keeping me up at night. Right. And, and I have a thought on how we could potentially get this done. And he had full authority to shut it down and, and tell me that if it was the right direction or the wrong direction. And forever to his credit, he said, keep going. Let's see if this can or will work. This was Luis's plan. Send up the outdoor version of the bat signal. Get leaders of the industry together, design a political platform, a set of shared principles and best practices. The delegations from each state are a mix of for-profit leaders, non-profit leaders, and politicos. We're going to have state senators in the room. The governor's going to come by. So when you, if you think about it, it's our very own version of the G8. And, and hopefully, you know, and we're going to be talking through the lens of economic development, conservation and stewardship, education and workforce training, public health and wellness. If we can come out of that room with, with some common principles – and we continue to add more states and ratify those principles, then presto changeo, what you have is the beginnings of a political infrastructure for our economy. My greatest hope is it will be collective. It will be representative of our diversity and our inclusivity, and it will be strong and brave enough to, to really lead the way. But here's the catch. The industry has to be behind them when, when it gets dark and when it gets scary. You know, when I think of everybody I've ever shared a rope with, the reason why I feel brave enough to be on the lead and feel bold enough to go into terrain that could be sketchy is because I have nothing but faith in the person on the other end of that rope. And that's what the industry is going to have to do for each other, is that if we're going to push people out there to be our voice in, in uncertain times, then they got to have our back. That meeting took place at Outdoor Retailer in January 2018. Outdoor Retailer is an industry expo and conference. So Luis was psyched with the results of that meeting. 80 people showed up from eight different states. They drafted the Colorado Accords. It's a plan outlining outdoor recreation's ability to drive economic development, conservation, and public health. It should be published publicly sometime this spring. But Luis says that was only step one. Once the industry organizes around a political platform, they have to advocate for it. But how? Well, that brings us back to Luis's belief. The idea that as the outdoor industry organizes, it should take cues from groups that tend to get a bad rap amongst environmental types. Should we emulate oil and gas? Should we emulate the auto industry? You know, I think in some ways, yes, we should. You know, they do a really great job of, you know, rallying power and, and politics. And we don't yet. We haven't gotten there. If we are truly saying out loud that we deserve to be at the big kids table and, and they codify the big kids table, we need to learn how to play that way. There's not a lot of people raising their hands to learn how to play that way, but we have to. Uh, and I think it's, it's just the nature of business. It's the nature of politics. You can't say you want permission to sit at the big kid's table and not contribute because then all you are are baggage. So, you know, the old adage of lead, follow or get out of the way is a very real current state question for us right now.
can you tell me what you think the oil and gas industry does really well to influence policy in their favor? Well, A, money. Money, 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 money. They've got it. Yeah. And not only do they have it, but they know how to use it. You know, the other thing I think they do really well is, and this is, I think, the thing that they don't get enough credit for. They have to pass such stringent restrictions um, and regulations before they even start poking in the dirt, which is why these restrictions and regulations are in place. So I think the industry, what they're doing well is they're incredibly socially aware, they're incredibly organized and well-funded, and based on the current matrix of regulations, at least for right now, they really have to watch what they're doing and be really careful about it. And, of course... Oil and gas have lobbyists and people in office who will fight for those industries' interests. Luis wants the outdoor industry to organize its political strategy just like that. I think to this point, we haven't had a lot of representation and it's been siloed. You know, one organization will have a D.C. day and then another constituency will go for their day and then there'll be another day. So it's great to visit people and chit chat, but en masse to show up or have the right kind of players show up. We haven't figured that out yet. We've never made efforts to get people into political offices that believe what we believe. We're just surprised when they show up. How many lobbyists do we have representing the outdoor industry in D.C.? We, we have a handful, depending on what the project or the process is, compared to, you know, using oil and gas as an example, thousands and very well funded. You know, our economy might be a multi-billion dollar one, but we're also made up of five-person company, 10-person companies, 15-person companies. You know, so the oil and gas industry, you've got multi-billion dollar multinational companies that say, okay, we're going to buy into this consortium of of, uh, political support in D.C., in the shape of lobbyists, um, special interest groups. So each company is going to donate a couple million dollars each. To pass our hat within our economy, it's going to require a little bit of a buy-in to building a different kind of ecosystem. Now, does that mean that Patagonia gives a thousand bucks, a ten-person ski company gets five, gives five hundred bucks? Um, yeah, probably. And if you're a naysayer, you could look at that paradigm and say, "Oh, well, you're never going to get anywhere." But then you look at all the crowdfunding that goes on in today's society and realizing that multi-million dollar campaigns are built off of $20 and $50 donations. Right. Don't yeah. tell me that it can't be done. We can do it. The reality is we just need to be, again, brave enough to suggest that infrastructure, build that infrastructure, and launch it. Why do you think that competing on the same level is necessary for the outdoor industry? Okay, let me throw this at you, Patty. All right. So again, over $800 billion economy, all right? That's what we're worth in consumer spending. Right. That's about the size of the auto industry and the pharmaceutical industry combined in the United States. But yet for our infrastructure, what we're saying right now is that the nonprofit community should take care of everything. So, yep, over 50% of the Forest Service budget has been cut for fighting fires. But don't worry about it. The average person in the average community, they're going to hold a bake sale, do a fundraiser for their favorite trail system. That's literally, if we're bigger than the auto industry, that's like the auto industry having a bake sale to take care of machinery on the factory floor. Or saying, you know what, we're going to have to start a nonprofit to uh, get our engineers trained because, (laughs) yeah, we just can't get the funding together. That's literally the paradigm that we're in the middle of right now. In my opinion, it's ludicrous. We can do better than that. 
You know, Patty, a lot of times I feel really overwhelmed and dejected. It feels like everyday folks like you and me are outgunned or unwilling and unable to meet these big moneyed interests on their playing field. Yeah. I mean, I would say uh, overwhelmed is just one of the many adjectives I could use to describe how I feel. I think because of the current political climate and the current leadership, there are a lot of us who feel this call to clench our fists and fight while also wanting to bury our heads in the sand. I know I've really, really been struggling with it, but Luis doesn't struggle with it because he continues to keep the words of the Dalai Lama in mind. Where can we find hope? Where can I find hope? You know, hopelessness grows in the absence of leadership. And so the thing that I focus on is trying to define that leadership for all of us. It's leadership that comes from places that we don't suspect. And it's not just one person on a hill. It's all of us stepping into a conversation that doesn't feel right and being brave enough to say, no, actually, that's not accurate. And that's not what we stand for. We let a lot of things run off our back due to indifference because we choose not to show up. And so when you ask why and how you should have hope is because still somewhere in the middle of all of this, people are striving to find a way to show up. And I think if that continues to be the case, um, that's how you have hope. And I think that's where hope springs from. You've been listening to Safety Third, a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Luis Benitez was our guest today. Thank you, Luis. You can learn more about what he's doing at ChooseColorado.com. If you like what you've heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Good ideas need spokespeople. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nicano. Mario Quintana edited this episode. Additional production help from Meredith Turk. Music by my brother. Yes, my brother, Brendan. I have a neckbeard, O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okay, pals, we'll see you next time. While you're out and about, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, safety third.